what Nietzsche describes throughout his work and more clearly and coherently as his philosophy and his writing and his life matures. So we see, we'll look today in The Twilight of the Idols, which is one of the very last books that he wrote before he um, lost his mental faculties or went insane or became ill, whatever you want to say. Um, and he has this really beautiful and clear formulation in The Twilight of the Idols that talks about what the Dionysian reveres, what it is that the cult of Dionysus worships, holds up, and honors through its worldview and its sacred rituals and rites. I want to oppose that to the view that the Christian morality um, takes on the feminine and on what the feminine really represents or what the feminine can represent, which is this capacity to gestate new life, this lineage of life given from mother to daughter to daughter to daughter, and this particular and very profound and unique ability that a female body has to carry new life and to bear it, to bring it into the world. So we'll look at what is known in Christian theology or ideology as the fall and how that compares to the Dionysian view of progeniture, of procreation, and of the rights <laughs> the activities that procreation requires, namely sex. I do think that it is, <laughs> misogyny is a thing, right? I think my argument that Nietzsche is not a misogynist is not the same thing as saying there is no such thing as misogyny. I just want to reify what misogyny really is and where it actually comes from. And it, it doesn't come from the idea that men and women are different. I think honoring the differences in men, honoring this very special capacity that women have for pregnancy and childbearing and mothering and raising and growing up the next generation of humans, in other words, propagating human life throughout the generations, recognizing that very special quality and all of the, the circumstances of being a pregnable creature, I think that is actually love of woman. That is honor of woman. And I would say that misogyny is an idea, an ideology, for example, the Christian ideology, that sexuality is in and of itself evil and sinful and dirty. And that procreation is just something that we have to do so that we don't burn with lust. Um, that it's better, as Paul says in the New Testament, to marry than to burn, but that it's better still just to be single and not to involve ourselves in sexual relationships of any kind. As we look at the story of the fall, the expulsion from the garden, and the curses that Yahweh lays on Eve in particular in relationship to childbearing, and we compare that to this beautiful description that Nietzsche gives us in the Twilight of the Idols of that which is Dionysian, which includes the reverence of sexuality, the reverence of everything that leads to the creation and sustenance, the 
perpetuity of human life from one female body to another, um, we're going to be able to highlight a little bit more clearly what, what it really means to hate woman, what it really means to deny woman, and more of the reasons why I do not believe that Nietzsche is a man who denies woman or hates woman. As I already established, and you can listen to the uh, three-part episode, The Psychologist of the Eternal Womanly, to hear a, more, a much longer argument to this end, but what I establish is that Nietzsche, yes, perhaps he does not revere or hold in high regard women who do not have this capacity for pregnancy or do not practice this capacity for bearing new life or who scorn this very sacred and precious responsibility of womankind to generate, gestate, and deliver new life into this world. I think Nietzsche does have scorn for such women as these, for being unnatural women, for being decadent women, for being resentful women, for being sickly women who attempt to take their revenge on all other women who have health and who have turned out well. So let's go, let's get there. Uh, by way of a little bit of introduction. So I think about these men that I see often posting on Twitter who are kind of telling us the real truth about women and in often along similar lines as the tack which Nietzsche takes when he describes the women who lack the stuff for children and the abortive women. These men that I see on Twitter, they, they represent at least a minority viewpoint on women and feminism, and one that I find interesting, so I'm going to highlight it. These men are apt to, and take a lot of pleasure in, I think understandably so, demeaning um, women who are feminists for being exactly this type of woman, the woman who lacks the stuff for children, the abortive women, and also ugly women. And I am operating on the assumption, and I'm not going to cite sources or you know, enter into some dialectical argument to prove this to you. I'm just going to explain to you where my biases are. But I'm operating on the assumption that beauty and fertility are positively correlated. The more beautiful a woman is, the more sexually attractive she is to a man, the more likely she is to be fertile. Now, we run into a little bit of a complication in the modern age with this very simple equation here of beauty equals fertility. Because beauty now can also equal pretense. A woman can buy the signs of fertility. A woman can simulate beauty by means of cosmetics, cosmetic surgery, makeup, wigs, hair extensions, uh, hair dye even, right, to make her hair blonder so she looks younger. Um, she can get fat or some other sort of implant into her breasts to make them look bigger. Same thing with your butt. She can have fat taken out of places where it gathers on an infertile body and put it into places where it gathers on a fertile body. Again, to create the image or the illusion, the appearance of fertility and beauty. From what I can tell, a lot of men buy into that. Like It is striking and it does it does impress. Like, we are very taken by appearances, and I think this includes many men who think that women with large fake breasts and large fake bottoms are more attractive women. Women with 
lip injections and uh, Botox injections and God knows what else is being done in the realm of cosmetic uh, and plastic surgery. But of course, the reason I think, one of the reasons that women spend so much money and time getting these surgeries done is that it works to some degree. They get more positive attention, it helps them to more effectively exercise the will to power, they have more influence over men and perhaps feel more confident in the competition with other women. So, you know, I want to say that natural beauty, you know, unenhanced beauty that isn't medically designated or um, purchased cosmetically, unenhanced natural beauty is equal to a high level of natural fertility. Again, on the other side of this equation, in the modern world, we run into another problem, right? Because you can take hormones now. You can put female hormones into your body that your body is not capable of producing for itself within the circumstances of whatever life we're living in the modern American West. But you can, you can supplement whatever deficiency your body has in hormones, and that will also change your appearance. It will change your smell. It will change the chemical uh, messengers that you give off to other people concerning your fertility. So there are a lot of ways to pretend to be beautiful, and there are a lot of ways to pretend to be fertile. And like I said, it's very difficult for us to tell the difference, you know, probably even more so in the case of taking um, a hormonal supplement like a birth control or some sort of bioidentical hormone. Those, you know, those things are going to be even more confusing to people because they're the telltale markers of like breasts that are too firm or a butt that looks just unnaturally large compared to waist size like we can sort of reason our way around those like yeah that's not really her natural state it's a little bit more difficult with like pheromones you know the things we smell off of other people because of whatever hormones they're taking and this obviously doesn't apply only to women like men are also engaged in cosmetic enhancements of the non-surgical and surgical variety men obviously are also taking hormones in the form you know of steroids and other things that i'm sure i don't know anything about to make them seem more virile stronger more attractive etc like we are all we are a culture of pretense and really willing to spend quite a lot of money and time on pretending to be more beautiful than we are and it's because of this it's for this reason right that we're so driven on a very fundamental level however much we wish that this wasn't true however much we try to transcend the animal in in each of our bodies we are very deeply driven by this desire to be attractive to the opposite sex to attract the opposite sex to exercise, you know, what is the ultimate expression of the will to power by joining up with someone and creating new life, transforming what we are into something new, into a baby. And even if we don't want to have babies on a reason level, a rational level, a con conscious or conceptual level, we are, we are nevertheless very driven still by this desire to pair up, to mate, and to get the most attractive member of the opposite sex as our mate, as another indication of our own power and our own value. Um, so again, back to these men on Twitter, right? They like to demean uh, feminists who are also ugly women by making fun of their ugliness and pointing it out and associating the two things, right? That these women are ugly, 
which and the unspoken equation there is ugly equals infertile equals sexually unattractive equals unable to find a mate and this is why they're feminists like feminist feminism as an ideology tends to attract these type of unattractive uh low value as far as the mating market is concerned women and the way that these abortive women, these women who cannot compete on the level of sexual attractiveness, the way that they choose to exercise their own will to power, because they are alive, right? And life is essentially will to power. Life is always looking for some way to express that will to power. And if it's thwarted down one avenue, it will find another outlet. It's like water flowing down to the lowest point obeying the law of gravity, if you will, even though I don't think Nietzsche would say it that way. Um, he doesn't believe that there are laws, but rather necessity, but we'll come back to that in another episode. But anyways, if water is flowing down to the lowest point and you obstruct it somehow, it will find another way. It will either break through the barrier at some point or it will flow around it. So too with the will to power. If it cannot be expressed through uh, beauty, sexual fertility, attractiveness and consequently the ability to get oneself a high value mate it will find another way to express and you know if you're ugly and unattractive to the opposite sex and unable to secure yourself a high value mate what Nietzsche is arguing and what these critical men on Twitter are believing I assume even though it's unspoken is that these women are trying to get revenge on more beautiful women so men are complaining all the time that feminists are calling them pedophiles because they're attracted to very young women, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old women. And they feel attacked, right? So they respond in kind by attacking these women for just being jealous, basically, of these young, beautiful, fertile, healthy, and desirable women. So essentially these men are blaming feminism on the same root causes physiological causes upon which Nietzsche also blames what he calls the emancipation of women. They're unhealthy women, in other words, ugly women. Feminism is, as Nietzsche describes it in Ecce Homo, quote, the struggle for equal rights is a sickness. Every physician knows that. Emancipation of woman is the instinctive hatred of the woman who has turned out ill, that is to say, is incapable of bearing children, for her who has turned out well. The struggle against man is always only a means, subterfuge, tactic. When they elevate themselves as woman in herself, as higher woman, as idealist woman, they want to lower the rank of woman in general. Uh, at bottom, the emancipated women are the anarchists in the world of the eternal womanly, the underprivileged whose deepest instinct is revenge, an entire species of the most malevolent idealism. The less than ideal state of the physiological body leads to decadence and then expresses itself in these psychological or ideological ways like for example feminism and um, it isn't even that these women really hate men it's that they hate that they aren't loved by men and they hate their feminine peers who are loved by men the same phenomenon just to be an equal opportunity offender arises in the incel community right these men who cannot win the sexual surrender of any woman who are virginal or extremely sexually inexperienced who are at the very least very frustrated sexually they have you know they express their pain 
their 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 unhealth, their lack of health, their the frustration of their will to power, they express it through hatred of woman, through demeaning woman. But that isn't actually what's going on, right, in those men. It's really that they're very jealous of other men who have the opportunity to experience sexual connection to women. But um, for whatever reason, they can't take it out on these men, even though I'm sure they do. But they also choose to sort of vent their vengeful hatred, their resentment, as Nietzsche calls it, against um, women. But that's not what it's really about. Really, they love women, or or would if if a woman would love them back, they would they would probably yield to that loving experience. They're just not able to get a hold of it. So this shows up again across the sexes across political divides like decadence and ill health is it does not belong to one sex or one. decadence is simply just the decay it just is a decay from the the ideal state of health it is a type of corruption of the physiological organism um, and that corruption always wants to express itself through vengeance it feels wounded right these women these ugly feminists, if you will, or these um, emancipated women, as Nietzsche describes them, or these incels in the male category, they feel hurt and their will to power is thwarted and they're unable to pay back that hurt. They're unable to defend themselves. They're unable to protect themselves. Whatever it is that is hurting them, in this case, perhaps just the scorn and the um, disinterest of the opposite sex, they can't change that, right? They can't they can't force a man to marry them. They can't force somebody to think that they're beautiful. They can't force, you can't force anybody to feel sexually aroused by you, right? It's an instinctual response. It's not anything to do with reason or morality or, you know, our better nature or our higher judgment. It's just a purely animal instinctual response that can be hijacked to some degree, but it can't be forced. Right, and that's what cosmetic surgery is, and the bravado that some men put on. These are all attempts to hijack that sort of natural sexual response, but it can't just be forced. Like, there has to be like something to work with there. And if you have nothing to work with, and you can't even sort of hack your dating game, or you know, go work out at the gym, or get some fake tits and some lip fillers, like. If all of those little tweaks don't even help you, if you're sort of beyond hope, beyond help, then what other option do you have to sort of express this feeling of frustration and pain except for to diminish the people who are above you, who are better than you, who are healthier than you, who are, mo who are more beautiful than you? And um, this feeling of resentment, of wanting you know, of an incel, for example, wanting the experience of an alpha male, the sexual experience of an alpha male, or of an ugly woman really wanting the experience of a beautiful, fertile, attractive, well-loved, sought-after woman, that, that feeling of wanting and never being able to meet that need, it generates an interior poison that Nietzsche calls resentment. And he talks about this really beautifully, I think, in a passage in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, this passage is entitled On the Tarantulas. So let's read that together. Quote, Lo, this is the tarantula's den. Would you like to see the tarantula itself? Here hangs its web. Touch this so that it may tremble. 
There comes the tarantula willingly. Welcome, tarantula. Black on thy back is the triangle and symbol, and I know also what is in your soul. Revenge is in your soul. Wherever you bite, there arises a black scab. With revenge, your poison makes the soul giddy. Thus do I speak to you in parable, you who make the soul giddy, you preachers of equality. Tarantulas are you unto me and secretly revengeful ones. But I will soon bring your hiding places to the light. Therefore do I laugh in your face, my laughter of the height. Therefore do I tear at your web, that your rage may lure you out of the den of lies, and that your revenge may leap forth from behind your word, justice. End quote. It behooves people who are in a lower position on the hierarchy, whether that concerns you know, power as power is, or power as sexual attractiveness, or power as it expresses in any other form, it behooves people who are below to agitate for equality, right? And in the mind of a person who is disadvantaged, because, right, it's a disadvantage. It's a disadvantage to be ugly. It's a disadvantage to be unattractive. And it's not anybody's fault, right? You're born into that set of circumstances. You can't really control the genes that you inherit, the family you're born into, the culture, the time, the place, the sort of combination of nature and nurture that is your fate. You can't control that. That That's what it means that it's fate, right? And Nietzsche believes very much in fate, and he speaks very articulately about what fate is. And he doesn't believe that you have free will, really. You don't have the freedom to be more beautiful than you are, really. You can tweak it maybe a little bit. You can adjust it maybe a little bit. But you can't really fundamentally change the degree to which you attract members of the opposite sex, right? Because even if you, say, go and get cosmetic surgery and you look the part, you create a convincing facsimile of fertility or virility, fate is going to intervene nevertheless. Water always finds its own level, right? You're going to attract somebody of equal fakeness to you. And y'all are both going to be deluding one another. You're going to be presenting an illusion to the other. And then you get really excited because you're like, oh, look at this very handsome man or this very beautiful woman that I've managed to bag, even though I know myself. Actually, I know what I really am which is not a very fertile person, which is not a very virile person. But look, I tricked somebody. I tricked this beautiful person into choosing me. And then, you know, as time goes by, the truth will out, as the saying goes. And whatever pretense you had as a costume, even if it's a costume literally sewn into your own flesh, it will eventually disintegrate. You won't be able to keep up that um that pretense. It's exhausting, right? Pretending is very tiresome. And at some point you're going to let your guard down and uh, all your warts and ugliness and craziness and whatever you've been damming back inside of yourself, something is going to happen that causes that dam to break loose. And, you know, the havoc that ensues will probably destroy your relationship or it doesn't work. Like we're not ultimately actually really free to change our fate. We can pretend that we aren't subject to it, but fate is much more powerful than our little games of pretend. So 
anyways, if you're in a situation in which you are on the lower half, right, of the inequality hierarchy, it behooves you to create these ideologies like feminism and ideologies of equality of all kinds, like democracy falls into this category as well, right? The idea that everybody is equal before the law. Everybody has an equal say in the creation of those laws and in the, the way that the country or the commonwealth is run. If you are already sitting on top of the heap, like, what interest do you have, really, in making everybody equal? Like, you're already enjoying all the privileges of being on the top of the hierarchy. It's only those people who are on the bottom of the hierarchy who want to agitate for equality, right? For making everybody the same, even though everybody is not actually the same. It is the abortive women. It is the women who lack the stuff for making children, i.e. the unattractive women, the ugly women. Those are the women who want to agitate for the equality of woman and woman, of woman and man, because they, are, they feel their inequality to be a burden. If you're privileged, if you're beautiful, if you're fertile, if you're virile, if you're sexy, if you're beloved by the opposite sex, if you're well-mated and you're experiencing the joyful expression and success of the will to power through your being at all times, like, why would you agitate for change? Why would you agitate for everybody to be equal to you? Ineluctable, inexorable nature of life, that it's not fair and that nothing is equal to anything else. But we love these ideologies, right? Especially especially if we can't fight fair. Especially if our physical body is not powerful enough to conquer another physical body or beautiful enough to attract another physical body. Then we sort of escape. We escape the real world, the embodied physical world, and we create this other, this other world that is more real than our actual lived felt real experience, right? We create other dimensions, we create abstract models, we create heavens and hells, we create any other kind of quote-unquote reality which makes us feel a little bit more powerful than the people who are actually more powerful than us in this real reality, which Nietzsche says in many beautiful ways and several places across the corpus of his work, like that need to divide the world into the apparent world, the physiological world, the physical embodied world versus the world of the ideals, the world of the pure, the world of spirit, the world of God, some other dimensions of reality that are more true somehow than the one that we're actually living in. That need to sort of create this basically imaginary realm in which everything that we can't have in the real world is suddenly somehow possible to us and not only so, but guaranteed for eternity somehow, that need, that is a decadent need, right? It's, it's, it comes from living in a state of distress in the physical world and wanting somehow to escape that world by creating another more beautiful realm in which we don't have to suffer from the inequality that inheres to this embodied life. So we create ideas like equality, right? We create ideas like justice. Therefore, Zarathustra says, do I tear at your web, that your rage may lure you out of your den of lies, and that your revenge may leap forth from behind your word justice. So this is an image, right, of justice is the mask, justice is the pretense, justice is the fake tits, justice is the steroid-enhanced muscles, but what what is really behind that is revenge. 
it's hatred, it's rage, it's resentment, it, and that all stems from decadence, right, from ill health. Let's read on in the text, quote, Because for man to be redeemed from revenge, that is for me the bridge to the highest hope, and a rainbow after long storms. End quote. I want to just comment on that because I think that's a really profound and powerful description of Nietzsche's love, right? And this is something I expressed perhaps without sufficient support in my first three episodes concerning Nietzsche's quote-unquote misogyny. I do see Nietzsche as a man of very deep love. I'm saying all of these things to you as an ugly woman, right? I'm not as ugly as could possibly be. There are certainly many women that are uglier than I am, but I'm certainly not as beautiful as I would like to be. My life is limited in many ways because of my ill health, which ramifies into my fertility, which ramifies into my appearance and my attractiveness to the opposite sex. I do not have a powerful mate. I do not have a comfortable or easy life. I do have to go out into the world and work for money. I don't feel good a lot of the times. I don't get special treatment from beautiful, powerful men because they want to make babies with me. I'm not a, I'm not an attractive woman, really. I'm not an unattractive woman. I'm just like in the middle of the scale there. So in some ways, I suppose I have a little bit of a taste of what it is like to be both beautiful. And in some circumstances, I do enjoy the privilege of beauty. And in other circumstances, I do enjoy the frustration of being ugly. And as I age, right, that that becomes more common, the frustration of being unwanted by the opposite sex, of being infertile and um, unattractive those instances become more regular as a woman ages and that's just right that's just the hard facts of life like we can get morally outraged about that we can get indignant about that and demand that it be otherwise however it will just continue to be what it is that's fate with a capital f but Nietzsche's love is that man should be redeemed from revenge that woman should be redeemed from revenge and I want to talk today I want to start to talk today about how that could be possible. How you could be an ugly woman, an infertile woman, an old woman, an undesirable woman, a woman of low value in the mating market, and not also have to retreat behind this defense mechanism of ideology, right? And feminism is just one example. Any ideology, all ideologies are defense mechanisms for a decadent, vengeful, resentful being. So how do we live our lives, accept our fate, which may be to be ugly, (laughs) without entrenching ourselves in this tarantula cave, right? Like, how do we not turn into a spider? Like Nietzsche is, um, portraying here. He's symbolizing this instinct towards revenge, this decadent instinct towards revenge as a spider, right? On a web that's trying to capture people and the stickiness and the web is the ideology and it's trying to capture victims in its ideology so that it can take all the poison that has come up in its own soul. Resentment is a poison and if you're sick already, the worst thing you can do is be resentful because you're poisoning an already weak body. 
if you become a little spider, as Nietzsche is presenting in this image, the way that you try to get that poison out of your body so that it stops hurting you is that you bite other people and put the poison into other people. And that's what this drive towards the equality between men and women, the equality between all men, the equality between all women, the equality between all different categories of people. That's this desire to get that poison out of your soul, that poison that comes from the belief that you could be happier if only everybody else would cooperate with with you. If only we could get rid of the real world that we don't like with all its inequality and unfairness and watch Jerusalem, the golden city, descending from the heavens and settling itself down onto the earth. If only we could make the world of ideas, the not real world, into the real world then we could be happy, right? And so we have all these pretty words like justice and equality, but really it's just us saying like, look friends, this world, it's working for you, but it's not working for me. And I don't really care about you, I care about me. So let's get rid of the world that's working for the powerful people and instead institute a world that works better for the weak people. And we're gonna do that because it's just, right? And because it's fair. But as Nietzsche says in another place, that's taking, the in, that's taking all of the organic functions out of life. The organic nature of life, which is a system where everything eats something else in order to survive, it requires that some people, some creatures, be food and fodder for others. That is the nature of life. And the only way to get rid of that is to, again, institute an unreal world, a world in which life does not rule, a world that is not alive, an abstract life. But Nietzsche's love is that he recognizes that this real world is actually the only world that there is. There, it, even though it's a nice idea, it isn't actually possible to change the nature of reality, the nature of organic life. We have this quirky capacity to imagine a conditional set of circumstances, a could, a would, a should. So many ideas about a world that doesn't exist because it can't exist. This is Nietzsche's idea of necessity. Everything which is must be. Everything that is, including inequality, including an unfair, literally dog-eat-dog organic life, is because it is because it's necessary. So the idea of could, would, and should are I don't know, they might offer some benefit, right? They might offer some gateways to the imagination, but it's a double-edged sword because it puts us in this life-denying position of saying, if only we could get rid of life as it is and institute life as it should be. So Nietzsche's love is, is he's, he's not a self-help guru, right? Like I was listening to a podcast the other day and someone was talking about Nietzsche and I regularly have this experience when someone talks about Nietzsche of just really big rage, really deep contempt for how badly people seem to misunderstand and misappropriate what Nietzsche has said. They were talking about Nietzsche's idea of the eternal recurrence. There is an aphorism in the gay science in which Nietzsche describes, you know, imagine that you are in your loneliest of loneliness by yourself at night and a demon steals into the room where you are and he tells you, listen, this life, as you have lived it, even this moment, everything in this moment, the spider web, or what does he say, the spider in the window, or the moonlight in the trees, even myself, this demon says, 
All of this you will have to live over and over again, not once, not twice, but eternally over again. Every joy that you've lived through, every pain, every single mundane moment of your life, every relationship, every interaction, every thought, every feeling, you will have to live it not just once, but a, but a thousand million billion infinite number of times again without any change whatsoever. Imagine that. What would you do in that situation? Nietzsche asks. Like, would you curse that demon for delivering you the worst possible news in the world? Right? Would you be so? Would you hate your life so much that the idea, or even just enough, would you hate your life enough that the idea that you had to live through it again would just make you sick? Would make you angry? Would make you feel deeply oppressed? Or have you lived through one moment of joy? Nietzsche asks, in which you would. Would you would remember that joy in that moment and you would tell that demon, Mr. Demon, never have I heard something so divine. Like, this is the gospel, right? This is the good news that this joy I have experienced in my life has been so profound and so worthy that I would live my life over and over and over again, a million billion infinite times over for the sake of that joy. I would affirm everything painful in my life, everything negative, every loss, every moment of suffering and pain and sickness and fear and overwhelm. I would take all of those things an infinite number of time because that means I would also get the joy that my life entailed. And this guy who was talking about this idea on this podcast said, he presented it as if it was like some sort of self-help technique, as if you should, I'm sorry, I'm, I can hear myself getting all indignant and I'm going to try to calm down because as Nietzsche also says, the indignant man is the falsest man, is the biggest liar. He says that in Beyond Good and Evil. So if you're getting morally indignant and outraged, perhaps you check yourself, right? Perhaps I could check myself right now and just control that indignance a little bit because it's going to cause me to lie and I don't. I don't want to lie here, but, but anyways, this is not a self-help technique that Nietzsche is, is putting forth. Like Nietzsche is not trying to improve, uh, improve the conditions in which mankind lives, right? He's not saying, okay, you need to go out and live your life in such a way that every decision you make, you're going to be happy if you have to live through that decision an infinite number of more times. So really think about yourself. Like this guy said, if you're complacent because you think that the suffering that you're enduring due to your complacency, you'll only have to live through it one time, then you need to check yourself. You need to check your complacency. You need to make the harder decision so that you can have the greater pleasure in your life. I don't think that's what Nietzsche is saying because we're beholden to our fate. Even when we try to override our decadent instincts, even that is just another form of decadence. All of the ways that we try to fight ourselves in our complacency, in our weakness, in our sickness, all of those things are motivated by complacency, weakness, and sickness too, and will have the same ultimate effect on our lives. We are beholden to our fate. We are a piece of necessity. This isn't about you know, having more positive thoughts and being more proactive in your life so that you can improve your condition and enjoy your eternal recurrence of your life throughout infinity. That's just, ideologically speaking, that's just another way of describing heaven, right? It's a moral suggestion that if you behave better, then you will enjoy the infinite recurrence of your life more. And that's not, I don't think, what Nietzsche is saying. There isn't a doer and a deed. Nietzsche says every quanta of power is realizing its own logical 
consequence in every moment. Whatever decisions you're capable of making, whatever kind of life that you are going to create for yourself in your future, it's probably not going to change very much compared to the life that you've had in the past and the life that you're living now. Maybe the details will shift around, of course, right? Life is always in flux. Everything is always changing. But you're going to have probably the same ratio of pain to pleasure in the future that you've had in the past, even if the circumstances of your life change, because it's all a reflection of the state of health in which you live. And the state of health in which you live is not solely a matter of your choice. It is a matter of fate. It is a matter of your inheritance. It is a matter of the culture that surrounds you. Your will isn't as free as you would like to think it is. When we experience freedom of the will, it's because there's something, there's some powerful will within us which is strong and able. It's able perhaps to get us out of a situation in which we might be complacent but ultimately very uncomfortable or unfulfilled and to drive us into a more intriguing and beneficial and health-inducing situation. Nobody stays in a bad situation because they have, they actually have an option to be in a better situation. Even if they quote-unquote could or should, or even if you would get out of the situation that you see someone else in, that doesn't mean that they can. It doesn't mean that they will. This eternal recurrence of the same idea is, is not a self-help technique. It's not to help you like hack your consciousness and start manifesting a better life for yourself. The question I think that Nietzsche is asking is like how much resentment is, is boiling and bubbling its poisonous brew inside of your soul. On some level, not entirely, but on some level we can work on how much resentment we allow to boil and bubble it's inside of our being and that's where the idea of fate comes in right that's where the eradication of the concept of the conditional tense the could would and should comes in because if you live in a mindset that says I could be happier if only if only people who were better than me would treat me as their equals if only a handsome beautiful powerful man would commit his life to me in marriage even though I'm not beautiful if only heaven could be instituted on earth if only the lion could lay with the lamb if only everybody was the same had the same money the same privilege then I would be happy and it should be that way that mindset that is what creates resentment the idea that things could be different, that I could control everyone around me to make my world more pleasant, that is the poison of resentment. And the more decadent you are, the more susceptible you are to that poison, right? If you're physiologically weak and you create a poisonous physiological situation inside, and we know well enough as members of the modern scientific age that our own internal body chemistry can poison us, the more decadent you are, the more physiologically weak you are, the more likely you are to create this poisonous internal environment, and the more vulnerable you are to that poison. So this is a long babbling way of saying that Nietzsche's love for the world, right, is for man to be redeemed from revenge. And I think this means like all men, right, higher men and lower men, beautiful men and ugly men, sexually attractive women and infertile abortive women men and women of all kinds like Nietzsche does not want to abolish the hierarchy of the classes or the difference between people because he doesn't believe that that actually creates happiness he doesn't believe that that actually creates health as that ideology claims that it will do life 
didn't organize itself that way. Why do humans think that we can override what life is in order to create a world that is more equitable, more just, more fair? And I think Nietzsche, he doesn't see the possibility of taking the organic functions out of life and still being alive, but he does see the possibility that we could stop poisoning ourselves. We could stop filling ourselves up with so much poison that we have to bite other people and put our poison into them in order to have some relief from the pain of that internal toxicity. He does see a world in which we could understand necessity in such a way that when that demon comes and tells you, you're going to live your life of ugliness, sickness, weakness, poverty, loneliness. You're going to live that life over and over and over and over and over again an infinite number of times. How well disposed would you be, must you be, to your life in order to say yes? That doesn't mean like how good does your, do the conditions of your life have to be in order for you to be excited about living it over and over again. That's not the question, right? The question is how empty are you of resentment? How surrendered are you to your fate that you would say yes? How do you orient yourself to the message of that demon so that your response is a affirmative and loving yes? And you don't do that by trying to manipulate the conditions of your fate. You do that by emptying yourself and cleansing yourself from resentment. We'll talk in another episode about Nietzsche's concept of the freedom of the will. And I'm not sure that I have the most perfect handle on it, to be frank. So take what I'm saying here with a grain of salt, please. But I do think it's possible, and I could be totally wrong about this. I, th- I do think it's possible not to make life worse by resenting life for what it is by living in the conditional tense, by abdicating the life that we've been given, which, however ugly it may be, is still a gift, and living in the world of could, would, and should instead. My fate is what it is. None of that has changed because I'm reading Nietzsche. I can handle the difficulty of my life with more grace and poise because I'm not wishing that my life would be different than it is. I'm not trying to pretend to be beautiful so I can trick somebody into loving me. I'm not trying to hate women who are beautiful, even though, of course, I feel envy. I feel jealousy towards those women. That's natural, and that's fine. And I don't even have to not be envious. I don't have to kick that envy out, right? I just have to sit with that envy and recognize this, too, is my fate. This moment of feeling envious towards my girlfriend because her boyfriend is a millionaire because she's beautiful and she's powerful and they get to gallivant about the globe and live in a million different places because he can afford it and she gets to lay on a lounge chair in the sunshine and take care of her beautiful babies all day and that's her life. Like, of course I'm going to be envious of her because my life isn't anything like that, right? But I don't have to eradicate the envy by you know, not being friends with her or trying to come up with all these reasons why she doesn't deserve it or why she's going to suffer later or why she's going to burn in hell. This is my fate. I affirm this fate. I will be in this moment of envy a million times more, an infinite number of times more because I love life and life is unfair and life is unjust and life made me, even though that's not technically true right this is one of the prejudices of language that like there's some creator and I am the creation but forgive me because there's no other way to talk about it life made me and just plain woman 
Life did not make me a privileged woman, certainly not as privileged as I wish that I was, as I would be if I could choose. (laughs) But I still love life, right? Like I affirm this uncomfortable feeling of envy. I affirm the frustration that I experience on a day-to-day basis because I don't have the power that I wish I had. I still say yes to life, not because if I say yes, yes, life is going to get better for me, not because if I agree to accept that which is, then suddenly everything is going to be easier and I'm going to be, the conditions of my life are going to shift for the better. No, because I love life as it is. Because I don't want to live in the world of could, should, and would and constantly boil with resentment and then feel this urge to vent my resentment on the people around me. I don't want to be a source of disease. I don't want to be a vector for a contagion of resentment. And this poison is like a vampire, right? It's like every time you bite somebody, you make a new vampire and then they have to go eat a bunch of other people and it's just, it's an exponential problem. The vampires quickly, or zombies maybe is a better illustration like you're you're a zombie like every time you bite somebody every time you chew on somebody they turn into a zombie too and it just spreads and then the whole world is zombies I don't want to live in a zombie world and I think this is Nietzsche's deep love is that we don't have to live in a zombie world a a zombie apocalypse is not one of the requirements of life and I think that's part of the zombie fantasy we have as a culture is that we're living in this deeply resentful culture and we're all just biting each other all the time and that zombie picture that zombie image that we see in in movies and video games and novels etc that's that psychological representation it's an image of that this resentment is going to take us over and erase everything that is human in us and drive us with this all-consuming desire to infect others to spread that vindictive, hateful, vengeful, resentful decadence across the world until it literally takes over humanity, until it destroys humanity. And I don't know if zombies, obviously they're not like a real thing. I don't know if something like that is even possible in nature. I don't know if resentment has the capacity to actually destroy humanity. But that's the image that the zombie creates and that's the fear is if you get bit, if you get, if this tarantula lays its little fangs into you, you too become resentful. You too start to boil with this poison and you lose what is human in you. And you just become this vengeance machine, just seeking out anyone and anything that you can hurt. This is what Nietzsche is attempting to portray here in the image of the tarantula. He doesn't use the zombie. I don't know if zombies were a thing in the 1800s. Maybe the zombie image even works better because it does have that image of dehumanizing us and of spreading. It's a very contagious infection, resentment. And perhaps one of the ways that we can help ourselves and actually help the world is to not let that contagion fester and brew inside of our own souls, to get ourselves free from the oppression of should, would, and could. Even if we can't free ourselves from the oppression of those who are more privileged than we are, those who have more money than we do, those who are more beautiful than we are, even if we can't, I think probably we can't ultimately get ourselves out from underneath the thumb of our betters, 
I do think we are able to get ourselves out from underneath the tyrannical iron fist of the conditional tense of could, would, and should. For man to be redeemed from revenge, that is for me the bridge to the highest hope and a rainbow after long storms. Let's read back in the text again. Quote, otherwise, however, would the tarantulas have it. Let it be very justice for the world to become full of the storms of our vengeance. Thus do they talk to one another. Vengeance we will use and insult against all who are not like us. Thus do the tarantula hearts pledge themselves. And will to equality, that itself shall henceforth be the name of virtue. And against all that has power, we will raise an outcry. You preachers of equality, the tyrant frenzy of impotence cries thus in your equality. Your most secret tyrant longings disguise themselves thus in virtue words. Fretted conceit and suppressed envy, perhaps your father's conceit and envy in you break forth as the flame and frenzy of vengeance. What the father hath hid comes out in the sun, and oft have I found in the sun the father's secret revealed. End quote. So Nietzsche has this wish, I would qualify it as a loving wish that man is redeemed from revenge. The tarantulas, or the zombies, they have a different wish. They have a wish to turn the whole world into a festering boil of revenge. They want to fill the world, Zarathustra says, or he puts this in the mouth of the tarantulas, full of the storms of vengeance. And they pledge to do that. That's what they agree to do with each other. They will use it to insult all who are not like us, which means all who are more powerful than we are, all who are better off, more beautiful, more fertile, more virile, more healthy. And they're going to hide this. It's really ugly, right? I don't know, maybe you don't agree, but it's ugly. That's an ugly impulse. It's not attractive. It's like not anybody's fault that they poop, right? It's not like I'm, you can sit in moral judgment of somebody for pooping, but poop is gross. It's gross. It's ugly and you don't want to touch it and you don't want to spread it all over yourself or put it in your mouth. That's just, it's just gross. It's not a question of morality. It's not a question of fault or blame. It's just gross. And I think this is something like that. Like it's, that is just a gross excrement. This desire to bring everybody down, to make life ugly so that everybody is as ugly as you are. It's just an ugly impulse, I think. But they want to pretty it up, right? It's just like an ugly girl or a boy who buys cosmetic intervention so that they look better than they are. You want to put on a pretty face. You want to present yourself as better than you are, especially when you're gross. And will to equality is the name of this virtue that these people have given themselves, right? These resentful, vengeful people. You preachers of equality, the tyrant frenzy of impotence cries thus in your equality. So, again, this is Nietzsche's idea of the will to power. These ugly ones, these weak ones, these ones who are lower on the social hierarchy, they don't have a way to express the will to power, which is in them, because they are alive. Every living being is driven, if you will. That's 
language makes it sound like there's these creatures and then there's this separable will to power that's working through them. That's not what it is. It's all one and the same thing. Life is the will to power. Life equals the will to power. So if you are alive, you also are the will to power. And if you can't express that in a healthy way by like winning people over to your love, like we talked about in a recent episode of The Gay Science, if you are sure of your power and you're sure of the allegiance of those over whom you exercise your power, you're far more likely to be kind to them. You're, you want to give them benefits because it makes them more devoted to you and more willing to fight anything that threatens your power. If you're not sure of your power, if you're actually weak and you're trying to establish your power, you do so through meanness, through causing pain, through inflicting harm, through abusing, because you're trying to coerce people into obeying you. You're trying to bring people under the force of your will who are not already under the force of your will. If somebody is already devoted to you, there's no reason to cause them pain. You just cause them pleasure so they become more devoted to you. So if you're not in a position of power, you don't, you're not able to use tactics of generosity because you, you don't have you don't have anything to be generous with. You're not able to use tactics of kindness and support and um, affection because you're full of envy and hatred and poison. So you do what you are. That's a, that's a kind of short way of summing up Nietzsche's idea about the will. It's not some separable thing that you can sort of commandeer in your service. You just do what you are. There's no separation between the doer and the deed. You act according to your nature. Your nature expresses itself through your actions. So if you have a bunch of ugliness inside, you can't give kindness. You can't give beauty or joy to people. You can only give them pain. And so if you're lower on the totem pole, right, you don't have a lot of power, the only way that you can try to get power is by hurting and thereby weakening the people who are, have more power than you. And you try to weaken them, or the tarantulas do, the zombies do, they try to weaken the people who have greater power than them by poisoning them <laughs> with this resentment that they have had brewing. They revenge themselves upon their betters with this virtue signaling, right? Nietzsche says virtue words, but the popular parlance in our modern language is virtue signaling. And you hear people accusing others of virtue signaling all the time because they're trying to defend themselves against the attack. If somebody is virtue signaling, they are attacking you <laughs> with resentment. And if you call them out for their virtue signaling, you're trying to defend yourself, inoculate yourself against that, the incursion of that poison into your system. But these people, it's the tyrant frenzy of impotence. So they're powerless, but they want to be the tyrant. They don't have any power, but they want all the power. And resentment and the expression of resentment through the ideologies of equality and justice is the attempt of the impotent person to become the tyrant. We read also in the Gay Science section 9 about our eruptions and Nietzsche refers to that here in the idea that a father's conceit and envy can break forth in his son or his descendant of some kind as a flame and frenzy of vengeance. What the father has hid often comes out in the son. So this makes sense, right? If you think about it on a, a level of classes, it's like if you are born a child of a lower class family, it's likely that that situation of poverty stretches back very far into your history. 
And of course, like, again, there's nothing wrong (laughs) or weird or even changeable, really, about the fact that you're going to be envious of people who have more than you. You're going to be envious of people who are more powerful, more beautiful, better off, happier. Like, of course, duh. That's not in question here. Nietzsche isn't asking you to, like, overcome your envy or extricate it from yourself. The challenge here is how do you be with your envy in such a way that it doesn't turn into poison? How do you get your envy out or express it or accept it, come to terms with it, like let it be with you, be a good host to your envy so that it doesn't get all nasty and corrupt and turn you into this tarantula or this zombie. But that's difficult, right? If it's like not only all of your life, but all of the life of your father and his father and his father back countless generations has been this life of impotence, has been this life of service to others, of having to give your own life force into the service of somebody else, having your will to power thwarted over and over and over again. Of course, that's going to build up a lot of icky feelings that very easily deteriorate and corrupt into resentment. I think we do have some choice in how we metabolize our envy. We have some choice in whether or not we drink that poison of could, should, would, you know, whether we drink the Kool-Aid or not. But maybe not everybody does. It's like, I am, like I said, I'm not a beautiful woman, but I'm also not an ugly woman. So maybe that's why I'm able to metabolize my resentment a little bit better. There are a lot of beautiful people in my family. So maybe I'm not living, having inherited the envy from generations past. Maybe I am just strong enough and just healthy enough to occasionally, I'm not saying that I do this all the time, but occasionally make the decision not to let my resentment ferment in me into this poison that I then have to vent on somebody else. Maybe it is a sign of my essential, God-given, fate-derived health that I am able to be interested, at least, in the idea of living without resentment. And maybe there are people who have just inherited, right, like people who've been traumatized, not only in their own lives, but their own ancestors for many generations back have been deeply wronged and badly traumatized. It's probably far less likely that they're going to be able to just have the psychological, which is physiological strength to metabolize that envy and to host it graciously without it turning into something deadly, something poisonous into venom. You know that saying, but for the grace of God, there go I. If, if I had a slightly more difficult set of life circumstances, I will all also be probably a poisonously resentful person. And in fact, I have been in the past, just absolutely intoxicated with resentment. This is why I love Nietzsche. This is why I'm so obsessed with Nietzsche is because he is, his writings, his philosophy has been a tonic to my vengeful, resentful little tarantula soul. And I have tasted some degree of health and cleanliness, some level of just being able to live a human life without feeling constantly intoxicated by this venom. It's not to say that it's possible for you. Maybe it's not possible for you. It was my fate to find Nietzsche and to even be exposed to the idea and maybe it's part of your fate to hear this podcast and to be exposed to this idea yourself and maybe it's all just predestined that you get this opportunity to stop drinking poison and it's not like a moral dictum i'm not trying to say that people who drink poison are evil they're sick like 
for sure, drinking poison makes you sick. But it might be their fate to just be stewing in resentment and generating poison and spreading it like a disease. That's a piece of necessity too. I'm not trying to sit in judgment. I'm, or maybe I am, I don't know. I don't know myself that well, really. And I definitely hide behind a lot of curtains. I hide my ugliness from myself just as much as I do from anyone else, I'm sure. However, I feel like, I hope that, what is motivating the creation of this particular episode is just that I have felt so helped by this idea, like truly served by it, and I don't really hear anything like this, not too many things like this, available in the cultural conversation. It's just a lot of finger pointing and blaming and tarantulas biting each other and zombies feasting on each other and I think you might have the option out of that. You might not. You very well might not. Like that might just be the life that is yours to live in a little tarantula den scurrying around and fighting with other tarantulas and biting each other. I don't know. But maybe maybe that's not your fate. Let's hear a little bit from Nietzsche in The Twilight of the Idols. This is entitled Morality as the Enemy of Nature. That's the name of the chapter. The section number is six. Quote, let us at last consider how exceedingly simple it is on our part to say, man should be thus and thus. Reality shows us a marvelous wealth of types and a luxuriant variety of forms and changes. And yet the first wretch of a moral loafer that comes along and cries, no, man should be different. He even knows what man should be like, does this sanctimonious prig. He draws his own face on the wall and declares, ecce homo. But even when the moralist addresses himself only to the individual and says, thus and thus shouldest thou be, he still makes an ass of himself. The individual in his past and future is a piece of fate. One law the more, one necessity the more for all that is to come and is to be. To say to him, change thyself, is tantamount to saying that everything should change, even backwards as well." End quote. That's just part of the section, but I like particularly that Nietzsche is highlighting that even to say to one other person, you should be this way, even if your moralizing doesn't extend to the entire culture or to all of mankind, even to look at your neighbor and tell him or her, you should be this way you make an ass out of yourself. So for me to sit here and tell you, you should stop drinking poison, you should opt out of resentment, it's for me to make an ass out of myself because you are, and I am, whatever we are, a piece of fate. One law the more, one necessity the more for all that is to come and is to be. For me to say to you or you to me or us to anyone else, change thyself, is the same thing as saying everything that has ever happened in the history of the entire universe should change so that you can be different. I think every thing, even though there aren't things in Nietzsche's physical understanding of reality, but for the sake of conversation, because I have to use language to communicate to you, we'll say thing. Everything is consequent 
to everything that has come before it. Everything that exists in this moment is necessary, meaning that it is the logical <laughs> conclusion of everything that has come before it. So to change any part of the present moment would require that we change every part or some parts and therefore every part of the past. We are the logical conclusion, you and I are, of our inheritance, of our culture, of human history, of the history of life. It just may be that you are someone who doesn't have to be resentful. It just may be that you are someone who is able to be liberated from resentment. It so happens that I found Nietzsche. It just so happens that the conditions of my life are beneficent enough that I have the space to focus my attention onto choosing not to drink poison. I think there are probably so many people in the world who simply do not have that fate, who don't have anything to drink if it isn't poison, <laughs> who don't have anything to eat if it isn't that resentment they have to eat it or they're going to starve and they'd rather eat poison than starve and that's nothing that I want to sit in judgment about. I guess the thing that pains me the most in my life is being a woman of low attractiveness. I'm sure y'all have your own particular shortcomings that really irk you and frustrate you and tempt you to deny life tempt you to say life is hard and then you die so what's the point like tempt you towards pessimism and nihilism and all of these other sort of decadent ideologies that a world full of decadent people have created and are touting really selling you know misery loves company as they say so it's very easy to fall into the trap to the tarantula hole and get enmeshed in the sticky web and the whole social milieu of the tarantula culture. But maybe it, it is a piece of your fate to take whatever it is that you don't like about yourself, whatever it is that makes you weaker than you want to be, less powerful, less healthy, less attractive, less intelligent, whatever, whatever is your issue, and to just accept that as a piece of your fate and to do the work of identifying the poison of resentment whenever it presents itself to you and just choosing not to drink it, choosing not to take it in, and choosing not to spread it. In section four of this same chapter of The Twilight of the Idols, Nietzsche talks about a natural morality. He says, quote, I will formulate a principle, all naturalism in morality. That is to say, every sound morality is ruled by a life instinct. Any one of the laws of life is fulfilled by the definite canon, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And any sort of obstacle or hostile element in the road of life is thus cleared away." End quote. Morality, morality is, it's relative, right? It depends upon the goal. Nietzsche has as his goal the affirmation of life, the enhancement and expansion of life, healthy, vital, vibrant, beautiful creatures, living beings. To achieve that goal, to achieve any goal, you have to have a set of steps, right? There's things that will get you towards that goal and things that will obstruct you in your mission. 
And morality is the way that human beings orient themselves towards their goals, whatever those goals are. The rules by which you must play the game depend on the game you're playing, right? The morality which you adopt depends on the goal that you have for your life. Even though I've talked a lot about could, should, and would being very silly, and I've mentioned the idea that perhaps your will isn't really free and you don't have as many choices as you think you do, we've talked about the idea of just everything is what it is because it must be. Everything that's happening now is consequent upon everything that has happened before and will in turn inform everything that is possible in the future. And these things taken together sound like you don't really have a choice. But we, th we have to think about it that way, right? We falsify the world in order to survive in it. We can't, we don't really have access to objective truth. We can't dispense with morality, even though it is false to some degree, and it is relative, always. We are still living beings, and we evaluate from the perspective of life. And if our goal is to be as healthy as possible, then one of our moral dictums, which we don't have to put it on anybody else, right? We could just focus it on ourselves. I choose not to drink poison. I choose not to bite with the tarantula's fangs. I choose not to erect sticky webs of ideology in which I can catch those people who are better than me and devour them. I choose to excrete resentment from my body, to push it out of my being at every opportunity that I have. I choose to accept my fate. I choose to love life as it is. I choose to affirm that life and to live it even though I might not be one of the privileged ones, one of the beautiful ones, one of the healthy ones, the powerful or the wealthy ones, I accept the piece of necessity that I am, the, the law that I am. A set of rules that we establish for ourselves, hopefully just for ourselves, is a set of rules that helps us to remove obstacles or hostile elements in the road of life. That's the point of a morality, is to orient us towards those things which affirm and enhance our lives and to remove the obstacles, the poisons, the things that will make us sick and detract from our lives. To read just the rest of that section, Nietzsche says, quote, conversely, the morality which is antagonistic to nature, that is to say almost every morality that has been taught, honored, and preached thus far, is directed precisely against the life instincts. It is a condemnation, now secret, now blatant and impudent, of these very instincts. Inasmuch as it says, God sees into the heart of man, it says no to the profoundest and most superior desires of life, and takes God as the enemy of life. The saint in whom God is well pleased is the ideal eunuch. Life terminates where the kingdom of God begins, end quote. So this is the morality of the tarantula, too. This is the morality of the resentful, who have created a set of rules that, yeah, supports the kind of life that they are, but the kind of life that they are is, it's an enfeebled, exhausted, and condemned kind of life. The morality that we've taught and learned so far, I think, Spe specifically this Christian morality, this morality of resentment, this slave revolt in morality, as Nietzsche calls it in the Antichrist, this 
morality is anti-life, or it's at least anti-life to the strong, healthy, vibrant denizens of this world. That morality is a set of rules that helps its adherents to aim at life in another world, in a world that may or may not exist, but we don't have any access to it. The only thing we know for sure is this world that we're living in, and the way that we perceive it, the way that we interpret the things that we sense in this world, they are false in some way, they are lies in some way, but they're lies in the service of life, right? They're lies that are attempting to help us navigate a very complex environment in a way that allows us to survive, hopefully, unto successful reproduction and to reproduce babies that also can live successfully enough to reproduce. In this Christian morality, though, it's a, it's a denial of life. It dislikes that which is life. It dislikes that which propagates life and perpetuates life. It says no to the profoundest and most superior desires of life, and it takes God as the enemy of life. In the Christian morality, uh, as it's been practiced over the last 2,000 years, the idea of valuing this life is immoral, right? The Christ himself says, do not build up treasures for yourself on earth where rust and moths eat and destroy, I don't know the verse exactly, but build them up in heaven, right? And the Christian faith is about denying this world, which is ruled over by the devil, you know? <laughs> the devil is, I think, the Christian name for the will to power, probably, or it's at least very similar. We're to really, you know, the most saintly Christians are the ones who are the most ascetic. They're the ones who are denying the instincts of life, the instinct to hunger, the instinct to acquiring resources, the instinct to sexual reproduction. The better you are at avoiding those things, right, taking the vows of poverty, chastity, and humility, the more saintly you are, the more holy you are in the eyes of God who is looking at you and watching you and judging you all the time, who sees inside of you these natural this natural will to power, this natural will to life, and is judging it as simple and will punish you in a very horrific way. So the best way to please that God, that God who sees this world as sinful, who sees this world as something which must be destroyed and overcome, who plans on instituting a new world because this one is so effed up, you know, that God, his most ideal saint, the saint in whom God is well pleased is the castrated one, the eunuch, the one who has no balls, meaning the one who cannot have sex, the one who cannot reproduce and continue life as it is on this earth, unfair as it may be. It is what life terminates where the kingdom of God begins. Morality, this Christian morality is antithetical to life. It is anti-natural. So in section five, he develops this idea a little further, admitting that you have understood the villainy of such a mutiny against life as that which has become almost sacrosanct in Christian morality. You have fortunately understood something besides, and that is the futility, the fictitiousness, the absurdity, and the falseness of such a mutiny. For the condemnation of life by a living creature is, after all, but the symptom of a definite kind of life." End quote. 
the morality which we've been taught it's a useful set of rules for a specific kind of life and that that type of being denies life like they don't like it they're not enjoying it they don't want anybody else to like it or enjoy it either so they propagate this morality that allegedly applies to everybody in order to bring the healthy down to their level misery loves company and a miserable creature not only wants to deny life but wants to deny those who are actually enjoying life and who are just moving from power to power in their embodied experience back to section five the question as to whether the condemnation is justified or the reverse is not even raised in order even to approach the problem of the value of life a man would need to be placed outside life and moreover know it as well as one as many as all in fact who have lived it so end quote they have denied life they say life does not have value but it's futile to make that sort of value judgment on life because you're party to life like you're participating you can't be objective enough you are a subject of life and you don't have sufficient distance from life in order to make a value judgment about it on some fundamental sort of cosmic level and the only way that you could is again if you had some distance from life if you weren't party to the argument if you didn't have some real skin in the game and if you had lived life not only as one individual but if you've lived every kind of life then you could step away and say mm, okay I've gathered all the data I've had the experience I don't really care I'm not invested in this I don't have any conflicts of interest here I'm gonna say yeah life is worth it or no life is not that's that's the only way you could objectively make that claim that life either is or is not valuable so you can't do it as a human living life he says these are reasons enough to prove to us that this problem is an inaccessible one to us when we speak of values we speak under the inspiration and through the optics of life life itself urges us to determine values life itself values through us when we determine values from which it follows that even that morality which is antagonistic to life and which conceives God as the opposite and the condemnation of life is only a valuation of life. Of what life? Of what kind of life? But I have already answered this question. It is the valuation of declining, of enfeebled, of exhausted, and of condemned life. Morality as it has been understood hitherto, as it was finally formulated by Schopenhauer in the words, the denial of the will to life, is the instinct of degeneration itself which converts itself into an imperative it says perish it is the death sentence of men who are already doomed Nietzsche is saying as living beings we have to have values we have to do a certain set of actions and avoid another set of actions in order to reach that goal and Nietzsche is asking though like if if we have a morality that denies life as it is then what kind of life would value or disvalue life in such a way and he's saying it's people that don't actually want to be alive that are alive and that have made a set of rules that will help them to die or help them at least to detach from life emotionally the denial of the will to life was formulated by schopenhauer i've admittedly never read any of his books and only learned about him secondhand but 
Nietzsche was heavily influenced by Schopenhauer, especially as a young man, and as Nietzsche's idea about the will to power is adopted and evolved from Schopenhauer's idea about the will, which is the driving force, the animating force behind life, Nietzsche came to the conclusion that life is valuable, that life should be affirmed, that we should say yes to life. Schopenhauer, on the other hand, came to the conclusion that life was only suffering and it was only pain and the only like quote-unquote morally correct thing we could do is to deny life and to disengage from it as, mu as much as possible, including to the extent of not engaging in sexual activity and therefore not propagating new life. And Nietzsche is saying if that's, it's pretty obvious what the goal of that morality is, if it includes especially as Schopenhauer decided, or as Paul, you know, cautions us in his letters, or as even Jesus says in the New Testament, right? It's better if you don't get involved in sexual relationships. Why? Because that is the creation of new life, and life is not worth living, and so you shouldn't be making new beings to live life. Jesus says, in the kingdom of heaven, they shall not be given into marriage. They shall not marry or be given into marriage. Paul says, marry if you must, just to avoid, you know, sexual sin of adultery and um, fornication. But it'd be better if you could stay single. Like, that's the ideal way to go, is to not have sex. And Schopenhauer agreed, maybe not with Paul, but with the basic sentiment that motivated the conclusion that Paul came to, which is, life is not worth living, therefore one must not have sex. One must not reproduce new life. So I bet you think that I forgot that I opened this episode saying that I wanted to talk about the difference between the Dionysian view of life and therefore of woman and the Christian view of life and therefore of woman. And I, I think what goes along with that Christian view, right, is this denial of the will of life, this instinct of degeneration itself, which conveys itself into an imperative that says perish. This morality that is the death sentence of men that are already doomed, as we've read about here in this section five. But I think I was just taking the long and circuitous route. I understand as misogyny is the way that that denial of life, the way that that morality views women. Schopenhauer, for example, refused to engage in any sort of sexual relationship with any woman because he, he didn't want to participate in the striving and the satisfaction of the will because it just generated this endless cycle of striving for pleasure and then briefly being relieved of your pain and then striving again for more pleasure, striving to avoid the pain, the suffering that is fundamental to life and ultimately cannot be avoided. And he, I would say Schopenhauer was a misogynist, right? Because he hated women and what they represented to him, which was the sexual enticement to participate in the creation of new life. I had an acupuncture treatment the other day and my acupuncturist had suggested to me that perhaps some of my disease in my body was inherited, right? And we saw this already in this episode, Nietzsche talked about that in the Zarathustra passage that we read. What the father hath hid comes out in the sun, and oft have I found in the sun the father's revealed secret. And so I was thinking about that, and as a, as a feminine woman, I'm very open to these, to imagery, and 
vision. Like it's very easy for me. I, I, I'm not imagining things, right? It's not that I'm like constructing a little video in my head. It's that I'm relaxing my conscious mind. I'm releasing this sort of constant revolving machine of thoughts and words and concepts and abstractions. I'm letting that go for a moment, just relaxing my body and kind of allowing my body to show me images. I'm allowing my body to communicate to me through pictures instead of just constantly being stuck in this sort of abstract part of my mind. Um, so in this vision, I saw myself, I was facing forward and my mother was standing in front of me and there was this huge, very thick umbilical cord going from my belly to my mother's. And she was kind of sleeping. She was standing up, but her eyes were kind of closed. And behind her was my grandmother, her mother. And I didn't recognize any other faces behind that. But what I understood was happening was that there was a whole line of my ancestresses, like a direct line of every mother, daughter, mother, daughter, mother, daughter, all the way down the line to me. And I saw my father and he was connected to me by this little thin black sort of cord that didn't look very healthy or a, you know life affirming life enhancing and i saw my mother's father and he was connected to her in a similar way so i have the feeling right the feeling is given to me it's not something i made up i don't like those black cords like those need to be cut so i try to cut the cord with my dad and then i feel like oh no it's that's not great like i want to be connected to my dad somehow still the only way that i could connect him back in that felt instinctually sound that wasn't just me forcing my image or forcing my idea onto what i was seeing or the vision i was being given by my body the only way i could do that and kind of stay in this flow and stay connected to what was being shown to me was to have my dad hold my mom's hand. They're divorced, so in reality they don't have that connection anymore, but in my mind, the state which would allow my body to heal, I suppose, is if my mom and dad were connected in that way, holding hands. Similarly, I put my mom's father, who's also divorced from my maternal grandmother, and I connected his hand to her hand. And that was, that seemed like the appropriate relationship to me. Like life was flowing through the umbilical cord connected through my female lineage and the masculine inputs, the male inputs to my lineage came through my mother's and grandmother's. They were not directly connected to me and it was actually a state of ill health. It was sickness and it was inappropriate for me to be directly connected to my father that way or for my mother to be directly connected to her father that way. The relationship of a, at least a female child to her father in this vision I saw, which isn't the gospel truth, it's just my truth, right? But in this vision I saw, the correct relationship is from the girl child to her mother. And the relationship to her father is mediated by her mother, mediated by her mother's willingness to open her hand and open her heart and to receive that man and to connect herself to that man and life flows through that female line males the, the masculine input it's incidental right it's necessary but it's incidental it has to come through this connection a father a man can be connected to his child which is the next generation only through a woman only through sexual congress with that woman. A man gets to participate in the perpetuation of new life when a woman receives him. And in her body, in her womb, in that umbilical connection, 
life is constantly flowing and propagating itself from one generation to the next through the female body, through the feminine form. If a man refuses to participate in that, if a man hates a woman, if he hates life, if he hates that flow of life that's moving through female bodies and chooses not to enter into sexual relationships with a woman, chooses not to enter into fatherhood and does so on some moral grounds, does so because his rules and the laws of his God or his philosophy or his ideology tell him that life is not worth living, that life is wrong, that life effed it all up and that we as humans have to get out of life because it's bad here and it's sinful here and everything about the embodied fleshly existence is a mistake and needs to be corrected by denial. If a man hates a woman on that basis, I would call that misogyny. That is what I would name as misogyny. So as I mentioned about Schopenhauer, right, he made this decision not to engage. Like he, he saw the sexual impulse as something that was fettering him to this life that needed to be denied. And I, I was listening to a, a podcast about Schopenhauer to Keegan again on the Nietzsche podcast. He did a three or maybe four, but definitely three part episode about Schopenhauer and the way that, that his thought influenced Nietzsche. I think it was episodes like 19, 20, 21, somewhere in there. So if you want to check those out, go over to the Nietzsche podcast and look at those. But I was listening to that podcast on that same day that I had this vision at the acupuncturist, right? And it made me start to think about, you know, what I knew, what I heard about Schopenhauer, and then what I know about the Abrahamic religions, Christianity being among those three, right? Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, what I know about Buddhism, which isn't much admittedly, what I know about Hinduism and yoga, it made me start to think that the male gender, the male being, the man, he, he has a more of a proclivity, like an increased proclivity when compared to a, a woman, someone of the female gender, the female sex. The man is more inclined to escape embodied life. One can see this in the patriarchal religions, like I mentioned, you know, quote unquote patriarchal, like Christianity, right? Where earth is bad, embodiment is bad, and women are bad because they perpetuate the embodiment of life. And the other realm is good. Wherever God lives is good. This disembodied reality in which God exists is good. You know, even in the Garden of Eden, after God created earth before humans messed it all up by sinning. Adam and Eve, they, they live together, but there's no mention in the Bible of them having sex. They, it only mentions them having sex after they are um, expelled from the garden. So even in the Garden of Eden, sex wasn't okay, right? In God's ideal creation before the fall, sex wasn't happening. And then same thing in Buddhism, right? Is that life is suffering, so the idea is to get to, to nirvana, which is like, it, it's it's an extinguishment of the flame of life. It's formlessness and it's having no desires, striving for nothing, having no will. And of course, not propagating, like you're not joining it with a female body and making a new body for a, a human soul to come and live in. It, it's a will towards a kind of 
non-existence. It wants to ex extinguish the ego or the individual consciousness and just move that form into formlessness. And in all of these religious systems or ideologies, women are either evil or at best they're a distraction from the path to God or to liberation or to enlightenment. And why is that? I think it's because of what I saw in that vision, what I described to you, because women are plugged into life, inextricably so. There's that, I don't know if I impressed upon you sufficiently, like the thickness of this umbilical cord. It was like a six inch diameter umbilical cord and I just felt so rooted into it. I could cut the cord between myself and my father. I, if I cut the cord, that umbilical cord between myself and my mother, first of all, I'd be so gross, so much blood and goop would gush out of it. And I was very disinclined to do that. And secondly, I recognized like that maternal connection, that female connection of life giving from womb to womb is crucial. It is vital. The flow of life was in that cord. And women are like by their nature, because they are pregnable, pregnable, because they gestate and give life to babies, they are plugged in to life. They can't, I couldn't unplug myself from my mother without dying. I just felt that truth in that moment, you know, and again, it's just my truth. You don't have to believe it. But women are, I think, by their nature, which we remember Nietzsche saying in Beyond Good and Evil, in one of the sections we read, women have a more natural nature than men, meaning that they are more connected to life than men are. Each woman, as soon as she becomes a mother, is a link in that unbroken chain of life, of begetting and supporting life, begetting and supporting more life, like ad infinitum. And a man, like I saw in this vision, can only stay connected to that chain of life if he chooses to continue to hold the hand of a woman, which it's challenging. It's challenging for men and women to get along well enough to keep holding hands. This is the fundamental antagonism between the sexes. So it's challenging. Like you can see how a man who isn't vital or virile or powerful or successful in his relationships to women might therefore turn around and just deny life altogether because they don't actually feel connected. They haven't been able to make that pact. They haven't been able to root themselves into that eternal chain of begetting and supporting new life because no woman will hold their hand and let them step in, let them participate in life, embodied life, in this realm, in this real world. Even if he does make babies, like, he's kind of detachable. He can just sort of let go of the woman's hand and leave, but the woman is connected to her child, metaphorically speaking, as an image, but in a way that cannot be cut off. Like, she just doesn't have the image to detach emotionally or even physiologically from her child the way that a man does. It's just much easier for a man to detach himself from that line of life. In the genealogy of morals, Nietzsche gives us a version, as a case and point that I'm trying to make here, of the story of what the Buddha did when he found out that he had had a son. Nietzsche says, quote, every philosopher would say, as Buddha said, when the birth of a son was announced to him, Rahula has been born to me. A fetter has been forged for me. Rahula means here a little demon. 
There must come an hour of reflection to every great free spirit, granted that he has had previously an hour of thoughtlessness, just as one came once to the same Buddha. Narrowly cramped, the Buddha reflected, is life in the house. It is a place of uncleanness. Freedom is found in leaving the house. Because he thought like this, he left the house. End quote. So you can see in this little story that Nietzsche tells about the Buddha, and Nietzsche is relating the Buddha to every philosopher, you know, including Nietzsche, including Schopenhauer and Kant, like including Jesus. These are all men who did not participate in procreation. But you can see through this little vignette, if you will, the reluctance that men have to stay connected to life through woman. This inclination in philosophy very strongly. Nietzsche criticizes philosophers for this exact proclivity this to describing the quote real world of ideas in counterposition to this phenomenal world of uh, appearances or illusions or veils as the Buddhists call it and the Hindus call it. Nietzsche says every philosopher would say as Buddha said um, and Nietzsche himself as I said you know he supports my opinion or the contention I'm making even further like he also was unable to join into the recreation of life through marriage and fatherhood. And Nietzsche admits, similarly, he says, the philosopher shudders mortally at marriage, together with all that could persuade him to it. Marriage as a fatal hindrance on the way to the optimum. Up to the present, what great philosophers have been married? Heraclitus, Plato, Descartes, Spinoza, Leibniz, Kant, Schopenhauer, they were not married. And further, one cannot imagine them as married. A married philosopher belongs to comedy. That is my rule. End quote. So Nietzsche is noticing, and I noticed it because Nietzsche pointed it out, this tendency that these men who tend to think of world, the world in abstractions and tend to not only so, but create these entire different dimensions of reality to help explain the world in which we're actually living, these men... They can't, and they certainly are not very inclined to participate in that long chain of life-giving that I saw in my little vision. So why am I talking about all this stuff about being an ugly woman and an emancipated woman and being filled with resentment and being poisoned by resentment in relationship to this idea of life and participating in that flow of life. And why did I bring up these men on Twitter who are criticizing ugly feminists for their inability to be mothers? Why am I, as a woman who doesn't have children, who is not participating in the procreation of life, talking about all of this? I think the question I'm poking around is how does an ugly woman, a woman who lacks the stuff for making babies, an abortive woman, how does she avoid feminism or some other kind of ideology that traps her in this little spider cave where she's just trying to capture people in her spider web of ideology so she can inject them with her venom of resentment? How does an ugly woman or a woman such as myself who's not a mother, how does she avoid feminism if in fact feminism is at least in some significant part simply a malevolent idealism forged in the inflamed wound of envy, weakness, and resentment. Like, what other options does she have? And I guess what I'm asking, right? <laughs> like, asking for a friend. No, asking for myself. What options do I have? Recognizing, as I did, right, when I had this vision and I saw this 
immense like oh my god how long the line of my ancestresses was and it's just it's stopping with me and no babies are gonna come through me I'm not gonna pass life on and it's bitterly disappointing to have to sit with that and reckon with that but am I gonna let that disappointment turn me into a spider (laughs) do I want to add to the fact that I have to live with the grief of not having children the resentment towards those women who have accomplished this deed and it might not this might not be that just a question that applies to me I think there are other women who are unable or unwilling perhaps to position themselves in this long umbilical chain of life receivers and life givers and in our culture women are increasingly possessed by masculine tendencies required to take on these masculine qualities in order to make it in the public forum and to advance their careers and to participate in politics and to be educated etc and and maybe women are being more regularly possessed by this sort of unhealthy masculine urge which i described in the image of schopenhauer maybe women are becoming more masculine masculinized in the sense that they too are like just choosing not to engage in this really sacred responsibility right of creating new life not a i'm not sitting in judgment of anyone i can't because i don't have children i have failed in this regard as well and this isn't like a prescription i'm not trying to say how people should be or shouldn't be i'm again just trying to explain what i think is misogyny and what i think isn't misogyny what i think loves women and what i think doesn't love women and also figuring out how to reckon with the fact that what I admire in Nietzsche and what he admires in woman, I'm not really able to be that kind of woman. I am not really a complete woman, but I also don't want to be a tarantula. I don't want to be a zombie. And I'm trying to sort of chart this path. In the Twilight of the Idols, which we've been reading from, this is in a later section, and I'm going to abridge this. The name of this chapter is called Things I Owe to the Ancients. And this is from section four. Quote, I was the first who, in order to understand the ancient, still rich, and even superabundant Hellenic instinct, took that marvelous phenomenon, which bears the name of Dionysus, seriously. It can be explained only as a manifestation of excessive energy, for it is only in the Dionysian mysteries, in the psychology of the Dionysian state, that the fundamental fact of the Hellenic instinct, its will to life, is expressed. What did the Hellene secure himself with these mysteries? Eternal life, the eternal recurrence of life, the future promised and hallowed in the past, the triumphant yes to life despite death and change, real life conceived as the collective prolongation of life through procreation and through the mysteries of sexuality. End quote. Let's unpack that before we move on to the rest of the section. What he sees in the Hellenes, which is basically everybody before Socrates, right? He doesn't think of Socrates and Plato and everything that came after them as having this Dionysian spirit. Socrates and everything after Socrates, they were decadent in Nietzsche's opinion. But the Greeks who worshipped this Dionysus, for whom Dionysus was a god who participated in these rites, what Nietzsche recognizes in them is a manifestation of excessive energy, a will to life. 
he has that in quotes, right? Because he believes in the will to power more. Uh, or he believes that the will to power is life. Like, we don't will to be alive. We are alive and we will to power. Anyhow, what the Hellenes were willing, what the will to power of the Hellenic race, how it expressed itself was this desire for the eternal recurrence of life, the future promised and hallowed in the past, the triumphant yes to life despite death and change. So in spite of the fact that life hurts, that it doesn't work out well for everybody, that it's unfair, that some of us are sick and most of us are slaves and a lot of us are ugly and very few of us get everything that we want, very few of us get to feel the sort of unmitigated expression of will to power, of life itself moving through our embodied experience. Despite all of that, despite the fact that we don't have a lot of control over the conditions of our lives, our wills are not as free as we wish they were or like to think they are, we're not really able to change who we are or to better the conditions of our experience to any really significant degree. In spite of all that, we say yes to life. In spite of all that, we stay plugged in to that umbilical cord of life-giving in we love life, not because we can fix it, not because we can eradicate suffering, not because we can make it fair. There's a better chance life isn't going to work out well for you than there is that it will. It, it's, it's the very few for whom life is a radiant and blissful movement from power to power. It's the all too many who are just suffering disproportionately and who will just make more babies that are also suffering disproportionately. Like... The odds are not really in your favor in this game of life. We affirm it anyways. And what he saw in the Hellenic people was that they were actually overwhelmingly healthy, that they were vibrant and, and exuberant, as he said. And he saw this, he recognized this in the tragedies that playwrights would write these tragic plays, and, and this was part of the celebration of the Dionysian cult. It was in worship, in reverence, a sacrifice, an offering to Dionysus, these tragic plays that showed that even the best of us, even the most beautiful and the most powerful of us are still bound to lose everything. And as a consequence of just some small little foible, some fatal but otherwise tiny flaw that reasonably could, there's that silly word again, could have been avoided if we had known better or had been privy to some piece of information that we missed. But the fact is that that's not what happened, and that life, even in its most glorious prime, can be cut down and is and will be cut down by death. Life includes death. Life includes all of these icky things that we don't necessarily like, but that are going to recur infinitely, not only in our own individual lives, but in the lives of every being, human, animal, and otherwise, that comes into embodied existence on this earth. And Nietzsche is saying that this is the worship of Dionysus, is to see life as full of suffering and pain, to sit where Schopenhauer sat and to come to the same conclusion as him, right? Life is suffering. Like, like the Buddha says, life is suffering, right? It's pain. It's unavoidable, constant and recurrent pain. But instead of doing what the Buddha did and denying life, instead of doing what Schopenhauer did and what Jesus did, we sit there in the glorious profundity of all of life's beauty and all of life's pain and we say yes to life and we get ourselves someone to have sex with and we find a way to make a baby and we perpetuate life anyways and this is the kind of attitude towards life which honors woman in her role 
as the body, as the container for new life, as that place, as that nexus in which soul and body come together and break forth into this real world, this world of the flesh, this world that is ruled by the devil, this world that is full of pain and suffering. Back to the text, quote, to the Greeks, the symbol of sex was the most venerated of symbols, the really deep significance of all the piety of antiquity. All the details of the act of procreation, pregnancy, and birth gave rise to the loftiest and most solemn feelings. In the doctrine of mysteries, pain was pronounced holy. The pains of childbirth sanctify pain in general. All becoming and all growth, everything that guarantees the future involves pain. In order that there may be eternal joy in creating, in order that the will to life may say yes to itself in all eternity, the pains of childbirth must also be eternal. All this is what the word Dionysus signifies. I know of no higher symbolism than this Greek symbolism, this symbolism of the Dionysian phenomenon. In it, the profoundest instinct of life, the instinct that guarantees the future of life and life eternal is understood religiously. The road to life itself, procreation, is pronounced holy. End quote. So sex is the most venerated symbol to the Greeks. In the Christian faith, it is a symbol of depravity. Sex is evil, especially if it takes place outside of any of the socially sanctioned bonds of church-approved marriage, but even that is sort of an add-on, because if you listen to what Jesus he said about it, what Paul actually said about it, sexuality was fundamentally wrong, and only permitted because humans are evil, and it was better for them to have sex in a constrained set of circumstances, such as marriage, than to just have sex with whomever motivated them, whomever made them say yes to life in whatever situation that might have arisen. In Schopenhauer, right, we saw in Buddhism and Jesus, we saw this, this resistance to pain, this a temper tantrum almost, right? Life is not worth living because there is pain in life. But in this view, in this Dionysian view, pain is pronounced holy because it is recognized that creation requires destruction and destruction hurts. Creation requires pain, everything that is coming through. Life as the will to power, as overcoming, as transforming itself into something new must endure pain. It's part of the process. It's inextricable. Nietzsche says in the gay science, pain, that it hurts, is no argument against it, but rather its essence. To the mind of someone like Schopenhauer or to the Buddha or to Jesus, that it hurts is an argument against it, and not only so, but an argument against life itself. In the Dionysian view, however, pain is holy, it's sacred, and the most holy and sacred instance of pain is the pains of childbirth, and woman, she is the one who endures this pain, and so the Dionysian also reveres femininity, reveres woman as the one who stands in that long line who participates in that eternal recurrence 
who bears the pain and the suffering of bringing new life into the world, like it is to her honor. That is what makes woman something that can be revered. So when someone says, right, that Nietzsche is a misogynist because he doesn't approve of or revere or value highly women who do not participate in this sacred dimension of embodied existence, it seems to me to be coming from a place of, I can't do this holy thing, I can't do this sacred thing, and my fate is not allowing me to participate in that, and it's not fair. I want it to be fair. I want to have as much honor as the woman who fulfills her first and last function, right, in childbirth, even though I'm not participating in that. So as a woman who can't participate in that and has not participated in that, part of my fate is recognizing that I will not be honored in the way that women who have children are honored. But I don't want to go and find honor for myself in a masculine realm. I would prefer to just accept the fact that my fate does not include the honor, the reverence, the holiness, the sacredness of motherhood, but to remain in my femininity nevertheless. I do not want to abdicate my femininity simply because I'm not the best woman. I'm not the highest type of woman. I don't want to drink poison in addition to the fact that I have to be hurt and sad about my inability to participate in this sacred role. Again, this is just my morality. There's a certain type of life, there's a certain type of feminine life that needs feminism, and she needs a place in the public world, and she needs political rights, and she needs to be considered equal to women, to, to men, rather. That is what the life that is in this type of woman values. That is the moral system that life is reaching to through her. But it's not the only option, I, I, I suppose, is what I'm trying to say. There is an option to just to accept the necessity of your barrenness if you are someone who is not able to participate in that, either through choice or under duress, I guess. There are more, there are more options than just being a successful and beautiful woman or being a vengeful and resentful masculinized woman. Life is so rarely ever just one or the other. It's so rarely just in these extremes. There's another extreme opposite end from this sort of Dionysian reverence to pregnancy, to sexuality, to childbirth, and to all of the messiness and pain that those things entail. And Nietzsche says at the end of this section, quote, it was only Christianity, which with its fundamental resentment against life, made something impure out of sexuality. It flung filth at the very basis, the very first condition of our life." End quote. So in support of that, I will read from the Bible, from the book of Genesis. This is chapter 3, uh, verses 17 through 24. I recognize that there are other ways to interpret this, right? I'm very stuck in the interpretation that I learned growing up and all of the connotation around this passage that that was part of the social milieu of the Christian church that I was raised in and the sort of Christian worldview that I was exposed to. Maybe you could see this story to mean different things and maybe Jordan Peterson would have a different interpretation of this, but like this, the feeling that I get from this story is exactly what Nietzsche says here, that, that, that it is flinging filth at the very basis, the very first condition of life, and it is demeaning 
the sacred act of sexual union and pregnancy and childbirth. So Yahweh is talking. To woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and clothed them. And the Lord said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life, and eat and live forever. So the, so the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. This little section of the story of the fall follows upon the disobedience, the sin of Adam and Eve, and this is their punishment for being sinful. I, I don't know how explicit this is from the text, but the understanding I get from church and from reading about Martin Luther or St. Augustine is that the fall, the fact that Eve ate from the tree that she wasn't supposed to eat from, that she listened to the serpent, like that introduced sin into humanity. And through Eve, from that inheritance, all people are incorrigibly sinful, unforgivably sinful. And so this precipitates the whole thing where Jesus has to come and die as a sacrifice to cover over the sin, these like unforgivable sins that characterize humanity ever since the fall and the expulsion from the garden. Childbirth, the pain in childbirth was not part of their life in the Garden of Eden, this ideal creation that God made before human sin ruined everything. And however, after they sinned and everything was already ruined and God couldn't forgive them and he couldn't love them as they were anymore, once they got kicked out of the garden, then childbirth and the pain of childbirth was given to Eve as a punishment. In the Dionysian view, it is, it is to the woman's honor that she endures the pain of childbirth. In the Christian view, the pain of childbirth is proof that woman is sinful, is proof that humankind is forever impure from their own sinful nature. Same thing with the work that Adam has to do to get food out of the earth. Previously it was just given to him. He was rewarded for his goodness in the garden, but when he proved himself to be sinful then he had to be punished by going out of the garden and having to work and sweat and suffer and deal with thorns and thistles. So the Bible is telling or at least the interpretation that we've inherited about this Bible story is telling a different story about the pain of childbirth. The act of sex itself is only introduced to Adam and Eve after they've left the Garden of Eden. When they were in the garden, they didn't yet know how to have sex. Sex wasn't the way that creation happened. Sex isn't the way that life comes into being. God speaks life into being ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's the word of God, it's the will of God that creates creation. It's not the body of woman. It's not the sexual congress of man and woman. It isn't that whole process which the Dionysian mindset, like Nietzsche said, sees that whole process from start to finish as holy and sacred. That is the source of creation. That is the fount of new life. In the biblical view, 
that is just something that happens because people are bad and it's a part of their inheritance of punishment. And the biblical view of the eternal life is very different than the Dionysian view of eternal life. In the biblical view, it's those individuals, it's Adam and Eve, they as individual man and woman had the opportunity to live forever. Their lifespan would be eternal. In the Dionysian view, life is eternal, but individuals are not. Individuals are vessels through which life moves and the perpetuation, the eternal recurrence of life, eternal life is actually life renewing itself in each generation, not just staying in one individual pair of beings. In the Dionysian view, death is a part of life. It is a part of the cycle of the eternal life. In the biblical view, death is a punishment, and it wasn't meant to be there in the first place. It just came because humans are bad and sinful. Like Nietzsche says, quote, the future promised and hallowed in the past, the triumphant yes to life despite death and change. So death isn't something that we deny and that we're waiting for Jesus to come and save us from. Death is part of the life that we affirm. It's part of the conditions of life and we say yes to those conditions. The difference between these two worldviews I think also grounds the difference in the opinion on woman. In the moral traditions informed by this biblical perspective, which include our modern moral traditions. American modern moral system is inherited from Christianity in large part. Feminism is in part a reactionary backlash against this biblical view, this, this actual misogyny, this actual view of woman, sexuality, pregnancy, childbirth as punishment, as sin, as impurity. It's a reaction to the fact that we see the continuation of life through sex, through childbirth, through pain as a punishment from God, as sin and disobedience, that continuing life in this way is disgusting and base and reprehensible and evil. And so woman, as the one who's most tightly bound, she's in that umbilical chain that I described. She's enmeshed in this process of gestating and bearing children. She is also seen in this Christian worldview as disgusting and base and reprehensible and evil and congress sexual union with a woman which is most highly motivated by the sexual urges of the man is also seen as evil it's a distraction from the higher life it's a divergence from the path to enlightenment and it's the opposite of the behavior required by a godly man who's supposed to be a chaste man a man who does not engage in sexual activity but the Greeks didn't see woman in this hateful way, and I don't think that Nietzsche does either. I do think that the biblical and Christian idea of woman is hateful. They see woman as evil. They see her as the conduit of the eternal recurrence of a suffering and miserable life. I think that's a misogynistic view, but I don't think Nietzsche participates in that kind of misogyny. He is a disciple, an initiate of Dionysus, and therefore he reveres the eternal recurrence of life, and he must therefore also revere woman as she takes her place in that eternal and holy right. So if this vision I saw is true in some sense, it's useful at least. Perhaps you can imagine that this Dionysian impulse visited me in this moment and that vision was showing me how do I relate to my mother? How do I relate to the life I've inherited through my feminine line? How do I relate to my father and my, the, my other male relatives? 
what was worshipped in the Dionysian cult. It was a connection to something that is true about life, and it's still available to us if we're able to receive it. I dropped into my body, deep into my instinct. I wasn't in my mind. I wasn't in my ideas or my abstractions at that moment. It was something that my body was communicating to me. And I imagine that this is how people created religious rites and religious interactions with their real life in our ancient history as well. They just felt into what was true in their embodied sense. They were able to turn their instincts into images and symbols and then to have a relationship with those images and those symbols. But it also confronts me with the question, how well disposed can I be to my life if I'm unwilling or unable to take on this responsibility to fulfill my first and last function? Nietzsche says, every woman is a problem. He says pregnancy is the solution to that problem, and I agree with that. I feel like a problem, and I don't think that I'm going to be able to solve the problem that I am. I'm not going to resolve the riddle in any other way, or at least there's a part of me that is a riddle that can only be solved through pregnancy and I'm not going to get a chance to do that so I have to live with this unresolved tension in my being all the time I don't get to have the natural solution that life has provided to me through pregnancy so what do I do with that I could jump on the feminism bandwagon and I could start ranting and raving about the patriarchy and I have I've done that and it it makes me sick or makes me sicker when he says in that Zarathustra passage we read on tarantulas, for man to be redeemed from revenge, for woman to be redeemed from revenge, that is for me the bridge to the highest hope and a rainbow after long storms. I don't know really anything about redeeming mankind as a whole. I certainly don't think that's my responsibility and probably wouldn't accept it even if it was. But I am very interested in redeeming myself from revenge, from spite, from resentment. I don't know for sure, I guess, if any other women are in the same position that I'm in and just bamboozled by the street brawl between feminism and Christianity. I feel distaste towards both sides of that argument. Like, I do not approve of the Christian vision of woman. I don't want to participate in that. I don't want to be that kind of woman. I don't approve of the feminist vision of woman. I don't have an inclination to be that type of woman. I feel like there's a third option, and this is what I think Nietzsche is offering in his view on woman. It's not misogynistic in the Christian sense of the word or in the feminist sense of the word. I also think feminism is misogynistic, like, insofar as it says there are no differences between men and women, insofar as it says there's nothing special or important about pregnancy or childbirth or mothering. I think those are misogynistic ideas, even if they're espoused by quote-unquote feminists. And I think that even though Nietzsche isn't going to give you a blue participation ribbon just for being having lady parts if you don't use them to make babies, his philosophy does provide an alternate route to those beings who were not able to fulfill that function. Let's read just one last section about resentment. This is from Eke Homo. It's in the first chapter and it's part six. Quote, freedom from resentment and the understanding of the nature of resentment. Who knows how very much after all I am indebted to my long illness for these two things. The problem is not exactly simple. 
a man must have experienced both through his strength and through his weakness. If illness and weakness are to be charged with anything at all, it is with the fact that when they prevail, the very instinct of recovery, which is the instinct of defense and of war in man, becomes decayed. He knows not how to get rid of anything, how to come to terms with anything, and how to cast anything behind him. Everything wounds him. People and things draw importunately near. All experiences strike deep. Memory is a gathering wound. To be ill is a sort of resentment in itself. Against this resentment, the invalid has only one great remedy. I call it Russian fatalism. That fatalism which is free from revolt and with which the Russian soldier, to whom a campaign proves unbearable, ultimately lays himself down in the snow. To accept nothing more, to undertake nothing more, to absorb nothing more, to cease entirely from reacting. The tremendous sagacity of this fatalism, which does not always imply merely the courage for death, but which in the most dangerous cases may actually, const may actually constitute a self-preservative measure, amounts to a reduction of activity in the vital functions, the slackening down of which is like a sort of will to hibernate." End quote. So Nietzsche is describing the state of illness and its similarity to resentment. When you become ill, or when you are poisoned with resentment, you lose the instinct to recover. You lose the instinct to defend yourself. You don't know how to get rid of things. You don't know how to accept anything, to come to terms with anything, he says. You don't know how to forget things. Just put it behind you and put it out of your mind. Everything hurts. People get too close to you. Everything touches you too deeply. You're very sensitive, and you just are remembering, ruminating, and it's this gathering wound. And all of these things are the natural state of a, of a weak person, an enfeebled person, a powerless person. Perhaps a barren woman would fall into this category. A sick person of any kind would. Nietzsche is equating, again, resentment with illness. But he's offering here a solution, right? And it isn't the solution of drinking more resentment and getting more angry at the world for being unfair and being more hateful towards people who have it better than you do. He calls this solution Russian fatalism. It is a fatalism which is free from revolt, so you're not resisting life as it is. It's not that you're mad and you're trying to change the conditions of your existence so that you can be happy again. It's that you understand that it can't be changed. You are one more law. You are one more necessity. You are a piece of fate, and everything that is happening to you must be happening to you. But instead of trying to like shadow box with conditions that you can't change, you just lay down in the snow. Not It's different than committing suicide. You're not offing yourself. It's not that. It's not that you're so fed up with life that you just hurt yourself because you're the only person you can hurt anymore. It's that you just look around. You see where you are. You can't do anything about it. You can't change it. Or at least not right now. You're too overwhelmed. You're not well. You're not strong. So you just lay down. You lay down in the snow. And if you die, you die. And if you don't, maybe you'll get enough rest and be able to get up and go on. And it's just that you're not reacting anymore. Resentment is a reactive stance. Weak beings only react. That is one of the definitions of weakness, that it is reactive rather than active. Strength is active, weakness is reactive. Everything done from weakness fails, therefore do nothing. And that's a, a pithy statement of this Russian fatalism. You cease entirely to react.
you just shut down. And hopefully when you like reboot, con the conditions will be a little bit different or you'll be a little bit stronger and maybe you'll be able to get up and go on. Quote, a few steps farther in this direction, we find the fakir who will sleep for weeks in a tomb. Owing to the fact that one would be used up too quickly if one reacts, no one no longer reacts at all. This is the principle. And nothing on earth consumes a man more quickly than the passion of resentment. Mortification, morbid susceptibility, the inability to wreak revenge, the desire and thirst for revenge, the concoction of every sort of poison, this is surely the most injurious manner of reacting which could possibly be conceived by exhausted men. It involves a rapid wasting away of nervous energy, an abnormal increase of detrimental secretions, as, for instance, that of bile into the stomach. To the sick man, resentment ought to be more strictly forbidden than anything else. It is his special danger. Unfortunately, however, it is also his most natural propensity. End quote. So here we go back to the venom of the tarantulas, and the more you participate in these, this reactivity of resentment the more you brew that poison inside of yourself the sicker it makes you the more inclined you are to vent that poison to get it out of your body and into something else but more importantly the more rapidly you waste away yourself that nervous energy it eats you alive your body starts releasing all of these chemicals and other secretions that are hurting your body so you have to stop you have to just kind of go into hibernation and he says you know, resentment, so this feeling that, like, the would, could, should feeling, the feeling that everybody else needs to be as miserable as you are, and we have to create this whole moral and social system that brings everybody else down to our level, that feeling, that resentment, that should be most strictly forbidden to the weak man and the sick man. Unfortunately, however, it is also his most natural propensity. This was fully grasped by the profound physiologist Buddha. His, quote, religion, Nietzsche puts religion in quotes there, his religion, which it would be better to call a system of hygiene in order to avoid confounding it with a creed so wretched as Christianity, depended for its effect upon the triumph over resentment. To make the soul free therefrom was considered the first step towards recovery. Not through hostility is hostility put to flight. Through friendship does hostility end. This stands at the beginning of the Buddha's teachings. This is not a precept of morality, but of physiology. End quote. I was conflating Buddhism and Christianity in some of my earlier rantings and ravings, and it's a good reminder here that Nietzsche does see Buddhism as a ideology of an exhausted people, like it serves a sort of exhausted people, but he doesn't see it as having that same quality of resentment, which characterizes Christianity. And as he explained here, Buddhism is more of a physiological, psychological system of hygiene. It's just for emptying yourself out of resentment, getting that poison out of your body. I believe it was a Buddhist monk, I don't remember the name of him though, who said, anger is the poison that you drink yourself hoping it'll kill someone else. I think that would be a better description for resentment. Resentment is the poison that you drink yourself hoping that it'll kill someone else. So they have this understanding that to keep the body sound, you have to let go of that reactivity and that resentment. And Nietzsche is careful to make that discrimination here between Christianity and Buddhism, even though he does relate them in some ways as life-denying, world-denying systems of thought. 
quote, resentment born of weakness is not more deleterious to anybody than it is to the weak man himself. Conversely, in the case of the man whose nature is fundamentally a rich one, resentment is a superfluous feeling, a feeling to remain master of which is almost a proof of riches. Those of my readers who know the earnestness with which my philosophy wages war against the feelings of revenge and rancor, even to the extent of attacking the doctrine of free will, my conflict with Christianity is only a particular instance of it, will understand why I wish to focus attention upon my own personal attitude and the certainty of my practical instincts precisely in this matter." End quote. If a man is fundamentally healthy, a fundamentally rich nature, resentment is a superfluous feeling. So it's a, if resentment comes up, he gets to exercise mastery over it, right? Like, I see you resentment, you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of me. That's how a, a, a healthy person will respond to resentment. And again, maybe my ability to respond to that indicates some level of health in me, even though I do consider myself to be a decadent person. Nietzsche as well, though, he considers himself to be both a decadent person and a noble soul in one body. And that's what he's saying in this section at the beginning, right? That he's experienced illness. He has been decadent. And that's how he understands the psychology of the decadent. That's how he understands the effects of resentment. He's experienced it. But he also sees himself as this fundamentally strong nature who is able to choose the course of action that actually helps him to recover from his ill health or his resentment. And that's what he's saying here is why he wants to focus on his own attitude. And this is why I had to go through all that rigmarole of bringing up the ideas of the free will and all of the conflict with Christianity because those are the things, like those are the idols, I suppose, that have to be struck down if we're going to get ourselves in this state of mind in which we can choose not to participate in resentment because the Christian morality and the idea of free will, they get us locked into this place of believing that we have to change the conditions of our existence either by fighting in this realm for some sort of change in the social environment or the natural environment or by creating some entirely different world in which the weak and the sickly will be enjoying a heavenly paradise for eternity while the healthy and the strong will be burning eternally in hell. We have to let go of those prevailing notions that characterize the way that most people deal with the fundamental pain and suffering that life entails because both of those notions create so much resentment in us and as a weak being or a sick being temporarily or constitutionally resentment is the worst poison that we can swallow so even if you do have free will like i don't know right nietzsche says the will is, it's not free but it's not not free like i know i can make choices i experience that in my intuitive embodied life right but i don't believe my will is free because i don't want to have to sit around berating myself hating myself doubting myself always being disappointed in myself always wishing i could be someone else and then hating everybody else feeling feeling this envy turned into resentment towards everybody else because they've made all the right choices that got them in all the right places and if only i could make those choices then i could be there too i'd rather just believe that the choices that i make are the only choices that i can make so i don't have to keep guzzling resentment out of a 40 ounce slurpee cup I wish to focus attention upon my own personal attitude and the certainty of my practical instincts precisely in this matter. In my moments of decadence, I forbade myself the indulgence of resentment because it was harmful. 
As soon as my life recovered enough riches and pride, however, I regarded them again as forbidden, but this time because they were beneath me. End quote. So as you mentioned, if you're healthy, you can feel resentment because it doesn't fester in you. Like you can be pissed at somebody for wronging you or for hurt, like harming your prospects or for getting in your way or for being better than you. But if you're a, a, a rich and healthy nature, you will express that resentment right away in action. You'll do something about it. You'll defend yourself. You'll start a fight. You'll yell and scream. You'll run around. Like you get the poison out of your body right away if you're healthy enough. If you're weak, it just stays in you and it stews. Nietzsche says, however, even when he became healthy enough to feel resentment again, he didn't because he was too good for it. He was too good to let himself be envious of anybody else, to let himself feel that someone had wronged him, to even believe that he was in a position to be wronged. He was too powerful. Nobody could hurt him. Nobody could wrong him, right? Resentment was beneath him. Quote, that Russian fatalism of which I have spoken manifested itself in me in such a way that for years I held tenaciously to the almost insufferable conditions, places, habitations, and companions once chance had placed them on my path. It was better than changing them, than feeling that they could be changed, than revolting against them. End quote. So this is exactly why I got irritated by that man that I mentioned earlier who offered Nietzsche's concept of the eternal recurrence of the same as some sort of motivation to make better decisions about your life and put yourself in more amenable circumstances and change the conditions and avoid complacency because you want your life to be as happy as possible in case you have to live it forever and ever. What he, he said right here, he just stayed where he was, even if it was an insufferable condition or a place or a living space or his friends like once chance or fate brought him to these things he just endured them he let them be a part of his life and Ekehomo again is one of the last books he wrote he wrote it right around the same period that he wrote the twilight of the idol so he was already firmly established in this idea of the eternal recurrence of the same it's not a life hack it's not something that's supposed to help you gather up your gumption and start to make better decisions about who you want to be in the world it's, again, a recognition of how full are you of resentment, how much resentment is just bubbling and boiling away in the cauldron of your soul. Because no matter the conditions of your life, if you're not being eaten alive by resentment, you will be able to welcome them eternally and infinitely again and again. Back to the last bit of the text here. He, quote, he who stirred me from this fatalism, he who violently tried to shake me into consciousness seemed to me then a mortal enemy. In point of fact, there was danger of death each time this was done. To regard oneself as a destiny, not to wish oneself different. This, in such circumstances, is wisdom itself. End quote. So, and just a further proof of the point that I made earlier about this this bro who is trying to say like use the eternal recurrence of the same to better your life conditions and that's why i said i got really big rage when i heard that that idea is and anyone who brings that idea forward is a mortal enemy to anybody who is in a set of circumstances of weakness or sickness or just being lower on that totem pole of the hierarchy of life 
it irks me to no end when people like that think they're being helpful. When people come forward to somebody who is suffering and who is eaten alive by resentment because of their suffering and tell them, you just need to change your thoughts. Like positive thoughts will manifest a positive situation. If you believe you deserve it, you can have it. Like, because that's just another moral system. It's just another system of punishment and reward. If you think the right things and feel the right things about yourself, you'll be rewarded with a great life. If you think the wrong things about yourself, you'll be punished with an awful life. It's basically the same as a Christian morality. It's just playing itself out on a slightly different stage, on a, on a different, a differently understood set of dimensions, but they're nevertheless this bifurcation between the unreal duality of this world as it is now, yourself as a piece of fate, and the world as it could be. And to get yourself all worked up about how you need to change your perspective and you need to change your mindset and you need to start practicing the positive law of attraction, that's not helpful to the weak person. I know being a weak person, it's not helpful to a sick person or a resentful person. It just pours more fuel on the flame of that burning, life-sapping, degenerating resentment in a body. When you're in a situation like I'm describing here of being a woman who is a barren woman, if, if one of y'all types in the comments like, why don't you just try to go get a husband who wants to have a baby with you? I'm in the situation that I'm in because it's the best I can do. Believing that I could do differently only makes me sick. Not, and this is not just an idea, this is my lived experience. So I wonder if there's other people out there who haven't achieved the life they want to achieve who haven't been the complete man or the complete woman that they wish they were, who are ugly, who are unattractive or powerless or, or poor or whatever. It's most of us. Most of us are in these positions. And all the advice you're getting from everywhere else in the world is basically, hey, just drink some more poison. Maybe that'll make you feel better. What Nietzsche is saying, and again, why I love Nietzsche is he's like, bro, you're poison. You're full of toxins right now. You're sick. You're weak maybe stop drinking poison for a while and see if that helps. But the poison, the poison gives me the energy. Like it, it, it caffeinates me. <laughs> like it anesthetizes me. It helps me to keep getting out there and trying and pushing and I can't give up. I have to keep trying. Like, no, just lay down in the snow. It's okay. Like if you die, you die. It's okay. Life is eternal. Life will continue with or without you. It's not up to you. The individual is always nothing. The species is everything, and the species is doing fine. The fate of the human race does not depend on you right now. It doesn't depend on your happiness. The value of life does not depend on how you experience life, or how you view it, or how you value it. Life is okay without you. <laughs> She's been here a long time before you showed up. She'll probably be here a long time after. Whatever you do from this place of weakness, it will fail, and you will just feel like more of a failure. So just do nothing. Just lay down, chill, stop reacting, Stop responding to everything. Stop trying. Hibernate. Lay down in a grave and just take a nap for a few weeks. Don't drink poison for a while. If your body can recuperate, it will. If your psychology can become whole again, it will. Trust the process. Trust your instinct. Don't get so fixated on your consciousness, your ideas, your abstractions, your life hacks, the TED Talks you heard, whatever this or that guy on YouTube is saying or whatever this or that podcast is trying to tell you. You know, it's not to say that all that stuff is wrong. There's a lot of it. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. There must be some merit to it or it wouldn't exist, right? It's necessary. We'll give it that. But here's the other option, right? Like you could just chill. You could accept yourself as a piece of fate 
and everything about you that is a failure, everything about you that's not good enough, everything about you that pales in comparison to your peers. Yeah, you know, there's things you can change, there's things you can fix, but it's probably not even close to everything that you want to change and everything that you want to fix. Yeah, you have to try. Like, you have to get up eventually and do something. You have to take care of yourself, take a shower and brush your teeth, go to work, try to make money, pay your rent, put some food in your belly. Yeah, we have to keep living life. This isn't a suggestion to just off yourself and be done with it. Not by any means. This is just a suggestion that you don't have to be assaulted when you're in a state of intense sensitivity. That you don't have to go out and face the hustle and bustle of the rat race when you are sick. If you're indignant, if you're resentful, if you have an ideology that makes you hate people, especially people that are better off than you in health or wealth or power or anything else, and if you are feeding your life to that demon, if you are giving what little strength you have to this idea that other people should be different or things could be better or wouldn't it be nice if, like, you can just take a break. There is that third option. You don't have to join one party or the other across the fighting lines. Like, you don't have to go into the battle and choose a side and argue about right and wrong. And maybe when you're strong enough, you can feel resentful again. <laughs> you can get into fights. You can stand up for yourself and yell and scream and holler. And maybe you will even get so well that all that shit will be beneath you. You'll feel so far above the need to react. I think that's enough for today. I think that I probably beat it to death as I am wont to do. Feel free to suggest any topics you would like me to address. I can make an episode around any of the suggestions that I find interesting or motivating. I'm open to ideas. I'm doing this in a very feminine way, <laughs> so it's not very rigid. It's very fluid, and it will take whatever shape it needs to take according to the requirements of the moment, according to the faded conditions in which I find myself. I am open to some input if you have anything that you are interested in hearing about from Nietzsche's perspective as it is filtered through <laughs> my perspective. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.